Uh, let's ask God to help us with his word. True and living God, uh, we pray, as we so often pray, that we would know now the good work of your word in our lives. We pray that we would understand it and that it would help us to trust Jesus for eternal life. And we pray that through its teaching, rebuke, correction and training, we would be equipped to live as his followers and to do the good works you call us to. And help me, I pray, to preach your word truthfully and clearly. In Jesus' name, Amen. Uh, throughout the Gospel, Jesus' ministry has been working towards a climax, a decisive moment, a moment that will either vindicate his claims and coming or mark him as just another failed visionary. Jesus and John have both spoken of that moment as his hour. The hour, we have been repeatedly told in the Gospel, has not yet come. But in the last few chapters of John that we've looked at, we've felt that moment draw closer as Jesus' signs and teaching have made dealings with his, dealing with his claims increasingly unavoidable, as we have seen opposition to Jesus grow and become more determined, and as we have heard the rapturous cries of the crowds greeting him as king on his entry into Jerusalem. Now, Prompted by the de desire of the Greeks to come to him, Jesus says that that moment has arrived. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The hour has come. My time, for Jesus is referring to himself when he speaks of the Son of Man, has arrived. My time to be glorified. And for a reader familiar with the prophecy of Daniel 7, which speaks of the Son of Man, your heart leaps. For the glorification of the Son of Man, the revealing of his greatness, is his coming into the presence of the Almighty God, the Ancient of Days, coming to his throne to be given a dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him coming to God, to be given an eternal kingdom, a never-ending rule over all. This hour is a time of triumph. And Daniel 7 goes on to tell us that glorification, that the glorification of the Son of Man is also the vindication and security of God's people as God judges the idolatrous kingdoms that oppress them. For God's people, the glorification of the Son of Man is a time of joy. And so what follows Jesus declaring the hour of his glorification is actually puzzling and confronting. As Jesus speaks of the content of his hour as death, the struggle of his hour and the outcome of his hour, and what will that will mean for his followers in the world. As we hear Jesus speak of his hour, we'll also see, I hope, this morning that this is not just a time that is decisive for Jesus, but for the world, humanity. Oh, decisive for you, the decisive moment for each one of us here. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, 
it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loses, loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Jesus has spoken of glorification, but then immediately speaks of death, of losing life. But the content of his hour, he says, will be fruitful death, the death of the seed that bears much fruit, like the wheat seed that's sown one seed and then gives rise to the plant with a hundred seeds. Now Jesus has spoken in the gospel before of his death as the source of life for others. The serpent, he is like the serpent lifted up in the wilderness who gives life to all who believe in him. He said he is the bread of life and the bread that I will give for the life of the world, he says, is my flesh. Jesus continues to the end, convinced that his death is purposeful and life-giving and his death will embody what is true for all in this world, a world which is understood in John as human society united in its rebellion against God. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. That is a truth that those who would serve him, that is, be his subjects in the eternal kingdom of the glorified Son of Man, must embrace. To serve him, says Jesus, they must follow me. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. There is no other way of belonging to the eternal kingdom, of knowing that eternal peace and secure well-being. Now, many of you come week by week, so I ask, have you got used to this kind of talk? Or do you feel how strange it is? How strange to claim to save, to give life by dying. A dead leader is usually a useless leader. A dead leader is powerless to keep any of his promises. So how can Jesus be confident his death will bring life? Not just to inspire people as a martyr's death may, but bring the never-ending life of the age to come, this new life. Strange, isn't it, to talk of life through death? And have you ever reflected on how strange Jesus' call is? We love our lives. We want to hold on to them and enhance and enrich them. But Jesus calls us to hate them in this world, to hate the life we live in a society shaped by its love of self and rejection of God, and to instead follow him in loving God and dying to do God's will. How can Jesus be confident that our dying to follow him is the way to live? Yeah, he is confident, isn't he? Confident because he is confident in his relationship with the Father, that he's sent from the Father doing even in death the Father's will. That confidence is seen even now in what he promises those who serve him. Where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honour him. The glorious Son of Man is in the presence of God. And Jesus says his servants will be there, honoured by the Father, welcomed. 
the content of Jesus' hour of his glorification strangely focuses on this fruitful death, his death which determines the character of our following him. And that focus on death means that this is not an easy hour for Jesus. Jesus may be confident of the outcome, but death is a hard thing for any human to contemplate. And Jesus is a genuine human, God and man. You see, all we know as humans is life. That's all the embodied Jesus has experienced. But now he contemplates death, a death which will be humiliation, shame and pain. No one wants to embrace suffering and shame. And Jesus knows the kind of death he faces. And so he says, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. As he does in the Garden of Gethsemane. Here Jesus expresses his natural longing to live to come to his throne in some other way. Father, save me from this hour. But he chooses to end as he has lived, seeking the Father's will. As he came down from heaven to do the Father's will and bring glory to the Father by doing his will, so here he commits himself to doing that will to the end and prays, Father, glorify your name. He is both entrusting himself to the Father in obedience and revealing what has been his life-directing desire. He wants the Father to show himself to be who he has revealed himself to be, to vindicate his revelation of himself. For God's name is his revelation of himself. He's asking the Father to spread abroad his fame so that all will see and acknowledge the truth about the Father, the glorious reality of God. It is a prayer that in the events that follow, the Father will show himself to be just and holy, to be the one who has life in himself, the only judge and saviour, the Almighty. It is a prayer that the Father will be faithful to his promises, his promise to exalt his faithful one, his Son, his Christ, as the ruler and judge of the nations, the shepherd and saviour of his people, the one who brings and gives the spirit, the life of the age to come. Unlike Adam, who loves self above God, the son loves the father with his whole being. Unlike Adam, who based his action on God not keeping his word, the son stakes everything on the truthfulness of God's word. At this climactic moment that will determine forever whether his life is a lie and a failure or true and glorious, the Son, Jesus, prays, Father, glorify your name. And in response, a voice comes from heaven. I have glorified it. That's what we've seen in the gospel, in the words and deeds of the Son throughout Jesus' ministry which have revealed the glory of God. And the Father says, I will glorify it again. 
in the unlikely events that follow in the Son being lifted up on the cross through betrayal and envy and cruelty, through lies and hatred, the Father will show himself to be glorious. He will reveal his almighty name. But this voice, heard indistinctly by the crowds, was not for Jesus, but for them and for us. You see, Jesus doesn't doubt the Father's commitment or character. This voice is to help Jesus hear us and us see that what follows, the arrest, the trial, the crucifixion, as well as the resurrection, is the Father's glory being revealed in the obedience of the Son, not some failure or error or accident. And Jesus is confident the Father's glory will be seen in the outcome of his dying like the seed, of his hating his life in this world because he loves the Father. Now is the judgment of this world, he says, and now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. The outcome of this hour will be the judgment of this world. The world. Jew and Gentile, religious and secular, the leaders and the mob, the governor and the rank and file is about in the chapters that follow to judge Jesus, the story we will hear on Good Friday. Humanity, united in its rejection of God and his rule through his word, is about to condemn God come amongst them. And in that action, it is they, us, the world, that will be judged. The rebellion of humanity against its creator will be exposed in that action for what it is, as bringing death, not life, embracing hate, not love, injustice, not justice. Whatever rebellious humanity claims of its wisdom or goodness or might in defiance of God will be seen in that action as a lie. And in their judgment of Jesus, the world will be declared a failure, for their judgment will be seen as powerless and unable to stand against God's. The Son will live where the world declared death. The Son will rule where they declared him to be nothing. The Son will be glorious where they have shamed him. The Son, even in his death, will be seen as the powerful and effective saviour where they deemed him powerless even to save himself. And when you hear the seductive claims of the world, <laughs> that it offers you life flourishing if you will choose your way over God's, if you will join the world in excluding and ignoring God to live your way, whether that's following your own sexual desire or your desire for money or power, when you hear the seductive claims of the world, remember the cross and the judgment of the world. It is judged forever. And the second outcome of this hour of Jesus' glorification is the casting out of the ruler of this world. The devil is described in John as the ruler of this world, for he is the one who keeps all in the slavery of sin and directs the world through his lie. But in this hour he is deposed and dethroned. 
those who were his captives will be freed by the cross and all authority given to the Son. The devil will not be able to hold people in death anymore or tyrannise them with its fear, for life and immortality are brought to light by that death, rising and exaltation of the Son. The devil's accusations against them, parading their sin and demanding their condemnation, will now have no power, for Jesus has died for the sins of his people and covered over their offence with his blood once and for all. And the Son... Jesus, lifted up on the cross and through the cross exalted as the living Saviour, will draw all people to himself. He will not be able to be ignored by any. Even those who dismiss him will one day face him. And so he will continue to be the central issue for every life, for every society. And he will save all those, whatever their race or language or culture, who come to him drawn by the Father. He can do that because in his death he has taken away the sins of the world and he is now exalted to have authority to judge and to forgive. Now think of the startling nature of this claim. I, when I am lifted up, will draw all people to myself. Jesus is not speaking when the Christian gospel is spread through the world. He's speaking in a backwater of an ancient empire before he dies a death of shame that most would want to forget. And John is not writing when the Christian faith was anything other than a small missionary movement. But look around the world today. Actually, look around this room. There are people from so many different cultures and countries. So think who is right about the significance of Jesus' death. And how could he know? Well, Jesus is right. But he doesn't know this from the zeitgeist or the consensus of opinion. Let's face it, the crowd is just confused. Who is this son of man? No, Jesus could be confident of the outcome because he knew his being lifted up on the cross was not some plan B, the result of the failure of his ministry to win support, to win over his critics. I mean, at this point in the Gospel story, you could perhaps think it was plan B. At this point, I could say, you can't get good help. Who made these slides? But, of course, I made these slides. And I want you to blame. Uh, Anyhow, this is why you should always bring your Bible. The frailty of the preacher. Test all things. Okay, but at this point, you could think that it is plan B. You could think at this point that Jesus was about to pay the price for the dismal failure of his ministry that hadn't won over the powerful and the influential, hadn't even won over the majority of people. I mean, the Gospel, verse 37, is brutally honest. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. But that unbelief, as you heard in John 12, is not failure, but fulfilment. It was prophesied. It was prophesied. 
And it happened so that the word of God spoken in Isaiah 53, Lord, who has believed what he heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? It's happened so that what God had spoken in Isaiah 53 would be fulfilled. John quotes Isaiah 53.1 so that we would know not only that the unbelief was prophesied but that this unbelief would be the circumstance, the context for the ministry of the servants spoken of in Isaiah 53. This unbelief would bring about the death of that servant for the sins of the people. That death where he would be pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, where the Lord would lay on him the iniquity, the sin of us all. You see, Jesus is confident because God had a plan to save his people, a plan, in fact, that the servant, the Lord, would be exalted as the only saviour of the world, a plan he is now fulfilling. And its fulfilment was never in doubt. That unbelief, despite signs that should have changed minds and brought conviction, was certain. Isaiah 6, for it was God's determined and just judgment on a sinful people. John assures us that Isaiah, in speaking of unbelief and the ministry of his servant, saw, verse 41, Jesus' glory and spoke of him. Saw his glory in glimpsing the Lord on his throne and seeing him revealed as the saviour of his people. Saw the revelation of Jesus and his saving work and the greatness of his being even from afar. This hour of fruitful death, this troubling hour of suffering, this hour which could would bring judgment on rebellion, the deposing of the evil one, the lifting up on the cross and to the Father's side of the Son of Man as the Saviour of the world, this climactic moment of glorification in death and rising and return to the Father was written. It was the plan and purpose of the Almighty God. That is why Jesus is confident. And in its fulfilment, the Father's glory in his truthfulness and graciousness will be revealed in the revelation of the Son's glory on the cross and in his rising and in his return to the Father. Well, having come to this climactic hour, knowing what is to come, Jesus in verses 44 to 50 looks back and summarises what he has taught of his word and the purpose of his coming. He summarises to emphasise because his hour is still a time to warn and invite. Whoever believes in me, Jesus cried out, believes not in me but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, he sees him who sent me. Jesus, in verse 34 to 36, urged the confused and clueless crowd to believe in him, to trust what he says, so that in the confusion of the days ahead they would have light and the safety of the light in darkness. Verse 36, while you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. 
He's saying that by believing in him, by believing his word, their lives would come to be characterised by light, their thinking and actions informed by Jesus' word, and that would be light and comfort even in the darkness of his coming death. And now before the cross, in verses 44 to 45, he reminds his hearers and us that his words and work are the words and work of God and that what is at stake in our response to Jesus, especially our response to him crucified, is our response to the living God. Whoever believes in me believes not in me but in him who sent me. And while a judgment will be enacted on the cross on the world, he reminds us in verses 46 to 47 that the purpose of his coming is to bring light to our darkness, to save from judgment. I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Yet, because his word is the word of the living God, an eternal word that will never be broken, where that word is rejected and ignored, he warns that a judgment is inevitable. Verse 48, the one who rejects me does not, and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. If you turn your back on the light, you remain in darkness. If you reject the only word that can give you life, you remain in death. If you ignore the invitation of God in his son to be reconciled to him, you remain estranged from him forever. The warning for us is clear, but the invitation is also sure. Verse 49, for I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak, and I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Even as Jesus goes to the cross, he declares that the Father's command is eternal life, heeding him, responding to him as the Father speaks in his Son, as he speaks to us today in the gospel of his Son, says Jesus, brings life, eternal life. And what he declares, that the Father's command is life, Jesus lives by. He goes to the cross in obedience to the Father's command and shows us in his obedience and then in his death and rising that the Father's command is life. Jesus' demonstration of the Father's glory in his hour of glory, his revealing of the Father's glory in the Father's faithfulness and graciousness in his giving his son for the sins of the world and then raising him up to life and to be the source of life gives clarity, certainty and urgency to this invitation and warning. We have heard Jesus speak to us this morning. Clarity for nothing less then following Jesus in giving all to do the Father's will is an adequate response to Jesus, the glorified Son of Man. You see, there is a believing that is no response at all. We've actually seen that in our passage, verse 42. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees they would not confess it 
so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory of that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. You see, those people had a conviction about Jesus, that he's probably a good man and someone speaking to the truth. So the truth, they kind of generally liked him. But that conviction was purely private and personal, unaccompanied by confession, unwilling to pay a cost. And so they revealed hearts that are in reality still dead to God, liking Jesus but still dead to God because they loved people and their opinion more than God. They feared people more than God. And so, I mean, if that's speaking to anybody, where are the people who like Jesus likely to be? It's actually here, this morning, in church. So is that you? Keeping quiet, not changing your life to confess Jesus openly, not changing your life <coughs> to do his will? Well, actually, if that's you, do not think that you are saved or will have any welcome by the Father. <coughs> because the response Jesus tells us he calls for, the response to him that will give life, the only response that is fitting, for we must always deal with the Son, the almighty Son of Man, who has all rule and authority on his terms, the response Jesus tells us he calls for is clear. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honour him. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. If we are to belong to Jesus' eternal kingdom, we must follow him in losing our lives like Jesus to do the Father's will and so being willing to be different from the world, from a society that does not want to acknowledge that the Lord reigns and his will should be done. And so think, what does saying yes to the Father's will mean for you this morning? Let me help you. For every one of us, it means confessing Jesus as Lord because the Father's will is that we believe in his Son. Oh, and it means loving Jesus' people. That's how Jesus' people are identified, by their love of one another. And that means publicly identifying with them, meeting with them, helping them, not living a self-interested life organised around your own personal desires and preferences, but loving Jesus' people. Oh, and it must mean holding fast to Jesus' truth, including the unpopular ones like creation and judgment, conforming your sexual morality to God's word, storing up treasure in heaven and not on earth. Oh, and like your Lord, continuing to warn and invite your neighbours to follow him. So think, what does not loving your life but hating your life in this world to follow Jesus in doing the Father's will mean for you? Because that is the response Jesus calls for. The cross that Jesus takes on here to save the world, the cross that with the resurrection and the return, his return to the Father is his glorification, gives now the shape of the lives of his followers in this world. 
It gives the shape of your life and my life if we are believers. And Jesus is clear that his taking the cross and glorification by the cross makes the outcome of following him certain. Where I am there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honour him. Is that your conviction? That you lose your life to keep it for eternal life? A conviction and a hope that encourages you each day. That what awaits is being with Jesus, his home, your home. And that you, believer, conscious of how insignificant you are, conscious of your failures, of your poor love of Jesus, of your inconsistent following, able to think probably now of words that you would have liked to take back, thoughts that you're glad no one else knows, actions that fill you with shame, that you following Jesus will be honoured by the Father. Because that's what it says. You wouldn't believe it, would you, if Jesus hadn't said it, that the true and holy God would welcome you that you'll be welcomed by him because you're Jesus' servant, a follower, that you'll be welcomed by him because Jesus hated his life in this world and gave it up to be lifted up on the cross to be the saviour of the world, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so do you live knowing this? Do you live knowing that your small daily denials, saying no to self and yes to doing Jesus' will because he is your loving Lord, do you live knowing that those small daily denials will mean you will be with him, honoured by the Father? Isn't that a good reason to keep trusting, to keep confessing, a reason to pray every morning for grace to say in all things like Jesus, not my will but yours be done, and at evening to give thanks that the glorified Son of Man is your Lord. Jesus' hour of his glorification gives clarity to how we should respond to him, certainty to the outcome of following him, and yes, it gives urgency. Jesus' glorification gives urgency to the warning and invitation the exalted Jesus still makes through his gospel. He came to save, and we share a message of salvation, not condemnation, a message that says the gracious Lord will forgive and give life to all who turn and confess him Lord. But like our Lord, we must also warn that to ignore or reject this saving word in this moment of grace is to be condemned justly with the world. For it is to continue to rebel, continue to choose death over life, the lie about God and ourselves over the truth, continue to choose love of self over love of our good and almighty creator. None of us knows the time of Jesus' return or of our death, the hour of our meeting our judge. His command, his invitation is urgent. I know, says our Lord, that his commandment is eternal life. So now is the time to heed God's command and believe in his son Jesus, not the private, afraid of what others will think, toying with Jesus, but the believing he calls for, 
dying to all the sins that hold you back, your pride, your desire, your greed, confessing Jesus as Lord and following him by living to do his will whatever the cost in this life. Following because you trust, you trust him that where he is, you will be forever. And you know that in this hour of death and rising, he is the glorious Son of Man. He's spoken the truth. He is glorified and the ruler over all, living always to keep his promises to his people. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that the Lord Jesus committed himself to seek your glory by doing your will and giving himself to be lifted up on the cross. We thank you that you have glorified him on the cross, that you have raised him from the dead, that you have exalted him to your right hand. We thank you that in his death and rising and return, we see the world, its rebellion against you is condemned. And we see that the evil one is deposed and that Jesus can keep his word and give us life. We thank you for the graciousness of his promise that if we follow him, we will be with him forever and that you, the holy and almighty creator, will welcome us as his followers. We pray in your mercy that you will give us insight today about what it means to follow him in the individual circumstances of our lives, what it is to love you and do your will. And we pray that you would sustain us in faith and hope so that we would follow Jesus each day until we come into your presence and are welcomed. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.